needs are universal, products are not. We build products to solve a need, not product for product's sake. What does a product manager do? We identify a basic human need and we design some product, whether physical or virtual, to satisfy that need. Computer science has all kind of, you know, formal programs, both four-year program and one-year, you know, master's Correct. program and so on. AI has all the programs, right. but all of those people have to work with product manager, people like you and me. Yes. Why do we have to figure it out on our own, you know, <laughs> on the job? Every product should have form and function. The reason we love the iPhone is because it's beautifully made, but we would not love it as much if it was not as functional along with the beauty. We are no longer the owners of the product, right? We are concierges or we are caretakers of that product. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication mm -hmm. in product building. In many product reviews, if I thought that the product was getting very complex and people mm -hmm. propose new features, yeah. I would always say, great, I'll let you have this feature, but tell me which other feature you're going to take mm -hmm. out. Deep, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I was, you know, just in preparation for this, I was going through the lecture notes that you recently published around product management. You know, I started out in product management as yeah. almost 20 years ago. I wish, you know, I had a resource like this available. And it was, I was able to relate to a lot of things and I was thinking some other things, you know, maybe, you know, even though I've done product management all this while, you know, maybe I don't know <laughs> some aspect of product management as well as you've articulated. So, what prompted you to, you know, put together this, you know, outstanding resource? I think it's a must read for every product manager. But love to know your thought process. You know, how did you came to like your, you know, you've been a VC for a while. What prompted you to, you know, create this whole resource for? Product? Yeah, no, but it's exactly what you were saying. Uh, and thank you for inviting me on your podcast. It's great to be here. But it's exactly what you were saying. I started out doing products 25 years ago myself, and you know, as as you and I both probably discovered, it's an apprenticeship business, right? There, there is no book, there are no classes being taught on product management, uh, and you just gain uh, this knowledge, and hopefully over time it becomes insights and wisdom. Uh, and I felt like, you know, I've had the opportunity to hire and train and work with and learn from hundreds if not thousands of product managers now and some extremely outstanding ones and some that have worked with me have gone on to do uh, lots of amazing things. Mm -hmm. And I felt like, you know, rather than every new generation just learning by apprenticeship, uh, maybe we can package some of these insights. So actually I started out by creating a class that I taught on product management at Stanford for several years. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the class cannot really scale because we, we could only have 30 students in our class just given it was a very interactive class and we did all the work of grading, et cetera, ourselves. So we decided that, uh, you know, maybe writing it would help it reach more people. And that was the genesis. And it took a while to write, by the way, just, you know, there are nine essays uh, so far uh, on my website, deepnesha.com. We've published about six of them. Uh, as of today, and we'll publish the remaining nine. But to write those nine took us close to a year. And in I mean, you mentioned those seventeen different product experts right. you guys interviewed in depth. Correct. And were you able to see a lot of commonality? Like, are are there diverging uh, viewpoints about you know various aspect of product management, or general principles seems to emerge? And most you know product practitioners seem to talk about similar things. There are some commonalities and many differences. And, you know, this is why I call it an apprenticeship business because there's no one set way of doing it. There are many paths to scaling that same summit and getting to success. For example, the 
uh, one essay that's already we published on technical debt actually demonstrates the the breadth of thinking and the depth of understanding that now practitioners have of the space. You know, when uh, you and I perhaps were uh, in our journeys of building products, it was always a bad word, right? Everyone would say, oh, you cannot have technical debt, just write very good code and so on. And as we started talking to other practitioners, you know, one thing became very apparent, which is uh, this is not one of those things you avoid, it's one of the things you manage. It's almost like stress in your life. You know, everyone says you should not have stress, that's impossible, because yeah. we are human beings, we'll have thoughts and we'll have, you know, ups and downs in our life, we'll always have stress. We have to learn how to manage it. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in a smaller context, mm -hmm. technical debt, if you write code, will always happen right. and you have to learn how to manage it. So that was an, a good example of getting those breadth of experiences, uh, you know, how does one, the, How does one, you know, design this apprenticeship path? Because, I mean, if let's say, you know, maybe in my early days, if I was able to uh, apprentice with you, then I learn your know, deeps way of you know building product. At some point, you mentioned Shishir. You know he was my boss in one of the startups I worked for, and he had you know very strong uh, viewpoints about product, and I've been in touch with him. But if let's someone who's just starting out as an early product manager, how can they create their own apprenticeship? Because it will probably take many years and many cycles to really understand the art and science of your product management Correct. in a particular way. Yeah, and you know, it is luck dependent, right? Like you were fortunate, you got to work with Sashir early on, I presume it was at Centrata, right? right? Uh, I was very fortunate, you know, I started uh, my product journey first at Cummins Engines, which is like a really well-run organization. Mm -hmm. Then I started my own company and I was able to learn by doing and learn by making mistakes. But then I got to Google. And Google, you know, has the famous APM program that had been designed by my uh, colleague Marissa Meyer mm -hmm. uh, at that time. And so you could see what world class looked like. And I, you know, I have perhaps a little bit more curiosity than the average person. So I observe a lot yeah. and I try to take the best of what I see uh, and try to deploy it in my own work and see how that works for me. So it's a little bit of a experimental way of learning by doing. Uh, one of the ways I have tried to operationalize that for folks who worked on my teams is for the best people or people with the highest potential, I always try to rotate them. Mm -hmm. So never let them, you know, be. And this is contrary in thinking in a way, right? Because when you have great people on your team, you want to keep them because you, you're like, hey, you know, we work well together. We can leverage each other. We can do great things together. But for their development, they need to see other ways of doing and they can then assimilate and become even you know better than the people around them and so we would make that uh, a, a programmatic approach and every 18 or 24 months the highest rated people had to be rotated to a different manager and work so with a different the google team. apm program uh, no this is something i instituted actually when i was at linkedin okay uh, and right. you know usually people give up folks from their teams who are not mm -hmm. doing very well and yeah. we made people give up people who are doing very well who are mm -hmm. the best performers wow. for the development of that right. best performer got it got it. and did it require some persuasion or some incentive creation like how do you culturally incorporate because you know it is difficult to hire good people you spend two years with them, you train them, and finally they start to perform. Right. And then Deep comes in saying, okay, great, you produce a, you know, A plus performers, time to give this person to another team. You know, how do you- Well, like... you get the others too. You get the others right? too. So right? it's okay. not 
uh, you know, when you, when people, when managers exchange poor performers, it's mm. called a lemon exchange. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think when right. you uh, exchange great performers, yeah. I would call it a mango exchange. Alfonso uh-huh. mangoes, right. you know, okay. the best of the fruit <laughs> <laughs> that you should share with each other. Right. Okay, so a lot of people in Nanda, I think, startups can think about creating <laughs> mango Alfonso exchange culture in the organization. And then you, that way you go around and I think you mentioned in the notes also reading that uh, the collaboration tendency goes up because you have the context of other team you are bringing the context with you now other context and you have friends on the other side as opposed to you know exactly. you don't want to share resources knowledge with other team because you want to ship our thing faster right so that way exactly. the spirit of collaboration will really go up over people correct and you're exactly right and also you know as we know working as product managers we have the most responsibilities for shipping but we have to do it all by influence. Engineers don't work for product managers. Uh, you know, designers usually don't work for product managers. Data scientists don't work for product managers, but then we are responsible for all of their work. And so that spirit of collaboration has to really be inculcated. Right. So I want to ask you, you know, look, you know, the, the startups have gotten all the attention of the last 20, 30 years, both in India and US. Startups in many ways are really driving the world, you know, incredible amount of money keeps coming in and in. You are investing, you know, huge dollars last 10 years into space and product management in many ways is the heart of it. You know, you have no startup without a product and you don't have a product without a product manager. Correct. Why isn't product management a more rigorous science? Like there is no master's degree in product management, at least not to the best of my knowledge. You have taken on the mental of teaching, you know, product management as you were lecturing at Stanford and now you've written this course and, you know, actively doing work. But why hasn't, you know, is this something people still believe is not something which is not formally teachable, you know, it's not at the level of, I don't know, algorithms or other things you can do master in computer science for. Why not for product management? So that's a great question. And, uh, you know, my colleague uh, and my erstwhile uh, teacher from Harvard Business School, Tom Eisenman, and I have talked about this quite a bit. And part of it is probably because this is not like a four-year full-length mm-hmm. program as such. Right. Right, so it can be taught within a semester and maybe you have two or three semesters worth of it. The challenge is always that it's not just an academic thing. So to teach it well, you need practitioners to come in and teach it mm-hmm. and then practitioners get very busy. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that's part of the but hurdle. I still think like, you know, computer science has all kind of, you know, formal <laughs> programs, both four-year program and one-year, you know, master's Correct. program and so on. AI has all the programs, you know, data sciences have. Right. But all of those people have to work with product manager, people like you and me. Yes. Why do we have to figure it out on our own, you know, <laughs> on the job? No, you're right. Uh, I, I think some thought needs to be given to it. Uh, you know, Michael Deering, uh, who was uh, probably one of the earliest uh, really well-known heads of product in the Valley, he used to run a three-month program uh, for product managers. And it was always like very full. I think he's, you know, since discontinued because again, it's a lot of effort. Yeah. Uh, to be teaching it. So when I taught the class at Stanford, it wasn't lectures. Mm -hmm. So we would do a three-hour class every week. The first hour would be discussing the topic to be taught. The second hour was we would bring in other practitioners to talk and make it an interactive session. The third hour was doing what the students had learned. So that is pretty intense, both on the part of the students, because they have to put in a lot of effort, and on the part of the teachers, because we had to assemble all the right people mm-hmm. and, and make it uh, you know, worthwhile for everyone to be there. Uh, and, and so 
to try and replicate that semester after semester and do it that's a labor of love really so you did it for four or five years for three years for three years and every like once semester a year or two semesters one once quarter a year one quarter a year okay system. got it yeah. got it and like are there any some like really well known product managers or entrepreneurs who came out of you know those that that labor of love this was very recent so I, a lot of them are doing extremely okay. well many of them went on to start companies uh, you know and i hear from them from time to time which is always gratifying i think that's that's one of the most gratifying things as a teacher is when you hear back from your students and they say you know that one thing we discussed mm-hmm. that really changed the direction right of what i'm doing or you know the way i'm thinking about starting my yeah. company etc when did you realize that you know you want to teach product management did it i'm guessing google apm program might have had something to do with it because in some ways that's a in house apprenticeship model right people so have you been teaching you know about product management since that long or at what time you realize that i've learned enough about product management so i can you know have a discussion with people who are just starting out in their product management journey and teach them the fundamentals yeah, so i built the class uh, in the 2014 2015 time frame so post my journey at google as well as post my journey at linkedin mm-hmm. so it took me a while to get there to feel mm-hmm. that i knew enough to be dangerous but also knew uh, you know not as much that i felt i knew everything and i i wanted to learn and that's the other part of teaching uh, which is it's incredibly clarifying because you don't know what questions you're going to get yeah. so you you learn the subject in a very new light mm-hmm. and you learn a lot more about it so it was as much for me and to deepen my understanding of the subject matter which i love like i really love building products i think about products all the time every time i see something you know i, I was just using the washroom here and i saw that spinning thing mm-hmm. and you know immediately i was like okay i've never seen this before who thought about it why is it here yeah. why is it built the way it is and so my brain just works in that direction so for me it was truly a labor of love and i hope it was very you know helpful and valuable to at least some I'm of i'm going to remind you of one anecdote you may or may not remember it you know so there was a tiger global organized this internet conference i think 2013 14 right and at that time you know uh, you know me and a lot of us you know look up to you as uh, this you know product management guru out of silicon valley and something you can learn from you're on stage and you know this um, mandarin oriental you know um, they have these jugs with the handle attached the bottom so there is no leverage and you pulled it up and you know you showed on the stage and i was at a conference at mandarin oriental just 3 uh, weeks ago okay and i saw exact same jug in the room and i said deep was talking about this in you know, a bad product design 10 years ago but clearly you know was listening they still use the same jug it's very painful to lift you know, to apply extra force right you know and that's the example of you know just very poorly designed product which will who knows will continue for decades i guess correct because you know every product should have form and function right the reason we love the iphone is because it's beautifully made but we would not love it as much if it was not as functional along with the beauty right. that it has and it's v- incredibly difficult right. to get both the form and function of a product correct yeah so one of the things you know i have used in my product management journey you tell me like whether you approve it or not is i would treat myself as the ultimate consumer right if i love the product i think it's is good you know most likely many other people like because i am not a unique is that a good way to look at products versus you know outside in where you're putting in you know hand of consumers observing collecting all the data which at some point you need to do but at least you know my go to framework is first of all i need to be wowed with the product i'm building 
and then hopefully many other people like it as well sometimes they don't yeah. but at least that's that's just my starting point so it's a controversial topic yeah. and this is one where there's Let's a lot of versions of opinions yeah. so i'm i'm glad you brought it up because you hear these stories a lot yeah. right it's like oh uh, you know the airbnb founders they like yeah. wanted to stay with some friends and they were like wouldn't it be nice if i didn't have to stay in a hotel room and yeah. i could stay with somebody else that's yeah. how airbnb mm. was formed or dropbox yeah. like drew was you know traveling back and forth mm. needed to share files with yeah. his co-founder and then decided to build that and so on and i think those are you know great founder stories mm. and those are universal needs yeah. but on the flip side i feel like it can be incredibly arrogant mm. uh, as a founder to believe that somehow our needs embody the needs yeah. of the vast majority of yeah. uh, you know users mm. and consumers out there right so my belief and my training suggests that walking in the customer's shoes mm-hmm. is probably the best way yeah. to think about what is needed in that product mm-hmm. like i can't tell you and i'm sure you've experienced this too you know when we do uh, user research right yeah. for a new product mm-hmm. we do it through the one way glass right and you're sitting there mm-hmm. and you're watching so how do we do the research we build something we mock it up or we have a functional prototype yeah. and we gave a set of tasks right, right. to the person who's come in for the user research study mm-hmm. and they have to accomplish that using the product right and then you know we see them struggling or we see them like doing the wrong wrong right in quotation marks things and you're like oh my god like why can't they get it is like right there and that is the fallacy right we believe we had the right answer anytime uh, you know and i i build lots of consumer products uh, as did you and you know especially for the mobile right like if people learned that i used to do mobile work at google they're like yeah you know this this app like i was trying to do this i don't know and my and you know it's natural human tendency you're like oh sh- let me show you and that's wrong as a right. product manager that's yeah. the wrong thing to that's do right, because right. if you have to show something to someone mm-hmm. that yeah. means there's a design fallacy no absolutely no one of the things i you know the the teams i would work with say like you know you are not going either you know unless you want to ship yourself with the product <laughs> or a user manual which you yes. can't do in a b2c and you can't do that but just to you know stir the controversy a little more yeah. right see see for the last time anyone read a user manual by the no, way no no one ever right exactly so <laughs> enterprise software you can get away with and that's why you know you see all these you know people piling on you know more and many options and three level four level because you can also charge for three month training along with you know Correct. as long as someone can manage to sell the uh, software license which is also changing right. now with the whole product led growth and all of that we'll, we'll talk about that later but just on that bit of you know see look uh, founders founders actually don't have the luxury to stay arrogant for a very long period of time <clears throat> you know to start somewhere you also need some kind of you know conviction and i guess i think both school of thought works either you are finding conviction because i you know poll 10 people here and let them play with it and they say either they love it or hate it mm-hmm. and that's a very strong signal or i start with you know let's say biggy ourselves you know i should say arrogance but some confidence and you know, i have some pulse of consumer and that's my <laughs> initial hunch and i'm going to give you some runway but eventually data will obviously speak for itself Correct. you can't run with that hunch in the face of everyone telling you the shit you know Correct. you have to drop it right? right but you know that's uh, so okay how does then okay let's say somebody with a fresh product you know nothing exist hmm. where does one start you know how do i come up with the you know this whole thing of mvp some articulation someone needs to put a stake in the ground that i am going to try to build this so uh, how would you suggest you know what is one way or maybe few different ways for someone to arrive at some you know reasonable mvp definition so uh, you know i i think we should maybe look at it from a slightly different lens which is the following needs are universal products are not 
right? So we build products to solve a need, not product for product's sake. And this is something that people, you know, don't realize. And uh, this is one of the biggest reasons why, especially consumer products fail quite a bit, yes. because people are building something for the sake of building that, yes. as opposed to saying, what is the need here that I'm trying to solve? Yeah. So needs, getting to understand the fundamental need, mm -hmm. and then understanding the depth of that need, the breadth of that need, and the acuteness of that need, mm -hmm. that's not a very difficult thing yeah. to do. But most people don't apply themselves there, right? We jump into because no one wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm going to use Google, right? right? Although Google's used by probably four to five billion people every day, yes. some Google product, right? If not Google search, but even Google search is used by billions of people every day. But people wake up in the morning and they are like, you know, just like today I had to get to your office uh, from my hotel. I looked up Google Maps, but I wasn't thinking I want to look up Google Maps. I'm like, I need directions to get to, you know, Mukesh's place and I need to know how long it will take me. Google Maps is not found product market in Bangalore, so <laughs> estimates are still not accurate. <laughs> but they're probably directionally <laughs> correct, correct yeah. right? Yes. So the, the point is, you know, if you think in terms of solutions, you get to product market fit mm. faster. And the MVP is that, am I getting sufficient coverage of the depth of that need and the breadth of that need? And that becomes a minimum viable product. I also have uh, this challenge with MVP, the construct of MVP, yeah. right? Because where do you draw the line? Yeah. And, you know, th there's this very controversial statement that, uh, you know, has been attributed to Reed, and Reed and I have had long discussions about this, where he would say, if you're, uh, you know, if you're happy with the first version of your product, like you worked on it too long or mm. something to that's that effect. That's right, that's right. right? I'm seeing it, yeah. And I'm like, but would you ever deploy a shitty product? Like you absolutely should be proud of what you deploy. And, you know, his point was more around like, do you even know there's a need? Like just get something out fast and you can iterate on it faster. And then, you know, it got paraphrased in a certain way and people start interpreting it in so what you're whichever alluding way they the, want. Yeah, there is a continuum, right? I think is where you draw the line and that's the judgment, right? And that's probably judgment in some ways, you know, part of product management training exactly. is to training their judgment. You yes. know, there is no right or wrong. You can draw a line here or a little further, a little further, right. but somewhere, you know, you can't be too early yeah, or you, too late. And you can't wait forever, right. right? So, you know, one of the things I tell everyone a lot is that my definition of a great product manager is that it's a person who has the brain of an engineer, the heart of a designer, and the speech of a diplomat, wow, okay. right? The, dip, the diplomacy we talked about earlier, because you have to do so much through influence, yeah. uh, the brain of a uh, engineer and heart of a designer is very appropriate for this conversation, this part of the conversation we are having, right? Because A, you need to know the art of the possible. So you should never specify like, okay, let's assume that going to Mars was a burning desire for everybody. Mm -hmm but space technology or rocket technology had not been discovered yet. You should at least know that. So then you can go back to fundamentals and try and figure that out. Right. The heart of a designer is very important because, you know, great artists, great designers kind of know that continuum, that balance, which is like, how do I peak enough of your curiosity and meet enough of your need to make this desirable? And then you can continue building on it right. later. Yeah, speaking of, you know, metaphors of, you know, artists and uh, designers and engineers, I think uh, in your, um, uh, this lecture series, uh, you talk about, um, uh, you know, librarian mindset versus a poet mindset. 
you know talk more about both you know <clears throat> like why those metaphors and what are the relevance of that in different product contexts and that metaphor actually you know comes from Drew Houston uh-huh. uh, and I, I think it's a very apt metaphor Drew is the founder of Dropbox of Dropbox yeah. that's right and the way to think about it is the following and he said it in the following context which is in his opinion you know people can either be like super creative and come up with all kinds of ideas or they are very good at executing somebody else's ideas and as a founder you need to know who you are so you can find someone who's compatible with you so at facebook for example and i've not worked with mark zuckerberg but talking to people there he is really the product strategist so he needs more librarians to work with him because if there are two poets they'll all have their you know they'll both have their own types of poetry and it may clash and the person who will suffer will be the user so let's just clarify what is the job of a librarian type of mindset you know in a product manager what does the person do a librarian you know my interpretation of that is they are they are very good at cataloging they are very good at executing they are very good at taking someone's product strategy and breaking it down systematically to decide what needs to happen so you can almost think of them as the system architect engineer mm-hmm. right you take a complex problem mm-hmm. or a complex pathway if you will so it's the construction manager to the architect's mm-hmm. dream right. right when you build the house you need both yeah. right but if you just have two architects the house may never be built right. if you have two construction people you may not get like a beautiful uh, artifact yeah and a lot of product management is about you know details i remember in my product manager days you know i used to love writing long you know prds and i think we used to call functional specs also in those days right. i don't know people do it anymore or not i don't think but, so you know, but <laughs> yeah, i know exactly but i have written mean. very long you know where you every boundary condition you Correct. write something and so on and on right but i mean that's i don't think librarian here is implied in any negative connotation no, no absolutely not you need both like i said right an architect's dream cannot be implemented without so both are required right the, these are yin and yang they are two parts of the same coin if you don't have both then you get something uh, and a poor this, outcome and this poet mindset so where does that come from because a lot of you know I mean a lot of people move from engineering to product management i'm guessing a lot of them are probably not coming in as a poet or dreamer or imagine but there are a bunch of people who come from you know non engineering background also do you think a little bit where you come from also has a bearing on whether you what kind of you know mindset you end up more of no i i think those are probably stereotypical so maybe more so than not in fact i was going to say that you know when you talked about functional specs etc uh, i've done both i've written extremely detailed ones and i've written some very broad based ones and what i learned very early in my career is when to deploy which ones because ultimately who is the spec for it's for our engineers so when i had really creative engineers who worked with me i didn't want to stymie their creativity and give them every boundary condition for them it was better if i specified what the end objective was give certain paths along the way and then say hey you have the freedom within this to be creative and come up with interesting things and you know typically when you're coding you come up with a lot more boundary conditions than we can ever envision without having to write that code right we may come up with 90% of them if you're very good maybe 95% but definitely not 100% and sometimes the engineers were like look just tell me exactly what you need like you know where every lego block fits and i'll design the best you know lego block house for you and then for them you have to write the long ones and this you know what works for engineering do you think is more of a function of a culture or it's very specific you know team or even the other way to individual engineers you know what works for me like how do you navigate this i think this definitely self selection so some cultures attract 
one type of engineers or one type of product manager versus the other. And as a result, you need to know what culture you're walking into. I'm sure you come across this in you know, Amazon that uh, starting with a press release. Yes. What do you think of that as a tool for product managers? I think it's 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 an important tool. It's not the only tool. Like we need to have multiple tools in our arsenal. Uh, the press release approach is a good approach because it uh, it bounds you to the need. Mm -hmm. So you're not like this. You're, you're not on this perpetual motion machine of continuing to build. Once you figured out what your end goal should be, you can work backwards. Mm -hmm. It's a very system theoretic approach, right? You, you know where you want to be. You know the boundary conditions. Now let's design the best possible system to get there. Okay. Okay. Let, let me zoom out. You know, and this now you you said you know spent twenty five years kind of. Watching product management as a practitioner, as a teacher, you know, as an investor, you think that this whole the body of knowledge in product management is moving on? Is the how product management is practiced now? Is it fundamentally different, or it goes back to same you know principles of really knowing who the customer is, really figuring out you know what is the need that you've uncovered, what is the simplest like, are the fundamentals remain same? Like how is the field moving? The field is building on itself. It's becoming richer. But the fundamentals don't change, right? It's almost like the laws of physics. Because we do quantum theory right now doesn't mean the original yeah. quant, you know, mechanical theories that Newton's laws, they continue to be relevant. Mm -hmm. Einstein's theory of relativity is built on top of that. And today's quantum theory is built on top of that. And the same is happening with product management. I always like to say that the laws of business, the laws of product building laws of physics, they're immutable. You just like enrich and enhance them. Because fundamentally, what does a product manager do? We identify a basic human need and we design some product, whether physical or virtual, to satisfy that need. Human needs have not changed since the beginning of time, right? We may have become more sophisticated, but it's all Maslow's hierarchy in terms of what our needs are. So you have to understand them. The, you know, the best products appeal to us in a very emotional way. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be like, you know, a beautifully designed glass mm. that always gives us the best grip. It keeps yeah. the water cool or it keeps it warm when the we need it. The handle in the right place. Warm the handle in the right place, of course, right? Doesn't spill even yeah. if we are a little yes. bit sloppy with it and so on and so forth. That's our need. Mm. Now, we can solve it in 200 different ways right. and, you know, come up with fancy handles which right. look beautiful and are not functional. So how is the field kind of building on itself? Like what are the new things you think has come up in the last five, seven years? You know, what do product managers today are doing or should consider doing that, let's say, when you and I were product manager, we were not doing? So one of the things uh, that has really evolved over the last 10 years, I think, maybe two things that we can touch on. And they are a little bit interrelated. When we first got our start in product management, and even when we were doing consumer products, we didn't really think of uh, growth engineering as engineering or science, yeah. right? We It kind of sort of happened naturally. Right. It was almost like build a great product and yeah. the users will come. And marketing and sales will take care of it. And marketing and sales. And somehow, you know, yeah. magically people started mm -hmm. using it yeah. and thinking about it. Like Larry and Sergey didn't think about like some big, right. you know, mechanism to get Google search in the hands of people. And although it was the ninth or the 10th search engine, it suddenly became very popular because the product was so amazing, right, at what it did. Today, I think uh, people have figured out ways and means of making the product stand out amongst the noise, right? And uh, growth, growth has become like an engineering, like a science. So that's, I think, one that is important. And that has led to this whole field of product-led growth. 
how do you do that? Mm -hmm. The open source movement uh, also now tells you that, look, you don't have to conceive everything about a product because the community will build on your product for you. That's something new. That wasn't something when we got started uh, was there. So I think product management or product building has become more participatory now in some ways. And that's actually kind of fun to watch, right? Because it evolves. It also means that we have to learn how to give up control. You know, we are no longer the owners of the product, right? We are concierges or we are caretakers of that product. No, absolutely. I think those are, yeah, I yeah, I don't remember working on, at least until I had my own startups, uh, trying to, you know, we all borrowed some of these things from Facebook and you talk to Chamatmi, we'll come back to that, you know, right. we all started building all these you know, growth hacking teams. Correct. And uh, this whole, you know, reliance on, and I guess this is, you know, building on next layer, next layer. Does this also mean the product managers today need to be some ways more technical in terms of awareness of what's possible, what's out there, what are the things so they're baking that in, in kind of solution they are doing and putting hands with engineer, or it's more of a collaborative thing, you know, product manager knows what we are trying to do, engineer will figure out what are the libraries and tools. That exist. How much does a product manager need to know? I don't think uh, a product manager needs to know everything, mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, again, knowing the art of the possible is very important mm -hmm. uh, for two reasons. One, you're not placing uh, unreasonable demands on the person who actually has to build it, mm -hmm. right? And that is important yeah. because, uh, you know, my daughter is a software engineer mm -hmm. and I cannot tell you the number of times she complains. She's like, you know, my product managers think that everything is highest priority and it should all be done <laughs> yesterday. Like, do they understand how to build these systems? Right. And that's something you never want to hear from your engineering right. counterpart, right? Yeah. Like, because mm -hmm. you lose their trust. Yeah. And that trust is a very important mm -hmm. relationship that you need to have. Yeah. So they need to respect the fact that you respect their mm -hmm. art. Yeah. And the only way you can do that is if you understand what goes into what they do every day. So how does somebody who does not have a training as an engineer who ends up in product management, maybe come from marketing track or done MBA somewhere, how do those folks build this enough context so they can earn respect of engineers and talk the language to some extent and understand constraints and you know uh, what it takes to you know put put everything together yeah i you know i think that uh, engineers have a uh, people with engineering backgrounds or technical backgrounds definitely have a little bit of an edge in terms of moving into product management because they have some of these in, inherent skills but these are skills you can if you have the aptitude you'll build them over time you just have to work a little harder in the beginning and I've seen enough people who don't have classical technical training becoming amazing product managers and you know go on to lead some pretty phenomenal products right. out there and some very good technical people fail at it. Mm -hmm. So it really is an aptitude yeah. uh, and it's a labor of love. Like you need to be thinking, breathing, just like mm -hmm. any person who wants to be at the top of their chosen field, like you need to live, breathe and think it all the time. Right, right. And I guess a lot of just curiosity and in today's day and age, I guess pretty much everything is learnable, you know, there is exactly. just, as long as you are able to ask the question, then answers are, you know, and very soon, I guess, you know, there's a going to be chat GPT version of product managers. Maybe we'll come back to that <laughs> as well, you know. <laughs> that, that yeah. that. <laughs> Generative AI may completely change everything we are right. talking about uh, here today. Yeah, 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 yeah. So just, you know, I want to go back to a very early stage and, you know, and you again in your, you know, this. Uh, there's uh, uh, you know lecture series you've talked about this in the upfront uh, early stage founders and how they think about products. Now, if you look at my journey, 
because i was coming from product management background i kind of assumed that you know i'm a decent in product management and i was pretty heavy handed in terms of you know taking product calls and it sometimes i would take the final call and so on you know we did build the product management team i think it was a while back, you know after many years you know eventually hire a a cpo equivalent mm. but i was coming from a you know, product background so perhaps you know had some but some right to you know, act that way but let's someone who's starting out you know initially it doesn't matter where you're coming from as a founder of the company you ought to have some point of view that you know this product because there is some need in the market that you know i've uncovered and i want to build how does you know those early stage founders who may not have product background how should they navigate building a product team ultimately someone needs to make a call right so who is that person in the especially in the environment where someone is not coming from a product background which i'm guessing majority of startups don't have founders you know probably more engineer founders mm-hmm. but it's just like a product manager not only that many right so how do those folks you navigate including maybe even also touch on you know even product managers in you know, a ceo job is different than a and a product management job so you know how sh- how should one you know, think it, about it it really is and uh, and you know also to make it even uh, more challenging a discussion how do you decide to hire a first product manager versus your first product leader and those are two different things and sometimes people conflate the two and we found that it was different enough that you know we wrote two different essays about it and the product leader essay has just evoked a lot of response from the community because it really resonates mm-hmm. um so there are probably three possibilities right so you have a founder who has product ma- background like you did it's a little bit easier in the sense that you can show the product direction you have a point of view of what needs to be built so the early days are good right you can get that going but soon what happens is you know the company starts growing you are also the ceo and you need to start spending time there so you have to make a call and you have to decide hey am i going to be the ceo and then the head of product or i'm going to be the head of product first and then the ceo second or i'm going to pick one or the other and you know it's a personal call and a lot of people don't make it explicitly and sometimes they just go back and forth saying oh today i need to be this and tomorrow i need to be that it creates a lot of whipsawing in the organization and recognizing that i think is important and then once you have somebody doing either one of the two jobs you have to let them do that job so that and that's where a lot of the failure modes do happen the second part second situation could be that the founder is technical not with a product background necessarily uh and you know you are obviously building the product in more in many of those cases what i find is the product is highly technical to begin with right because they're trying to solve some technical need in which case like i think it still ends up being a subset or a fairly large overlap when diagram of the first case and similar things apply the third case where the founder is neither a product or a technical person and wants to build a company that's a little bit hard and in that case you know having a co-founder who can do those things does become important sometimes this happens in i i think i have seen this happen more in enterprise software startups mm-hmm. because there let's say you were in a commercial function or you were in a go to market function you may discover needs right you understand what the customer really wants you see you look around and you don't see that need at uh, being fulfilled in any way shape or form their understanding that customer is very important having a co-founder or someone who's really an equal intellectual partner to you 
who can translate those needs that you can articulate really well by virtue of being in the field into what the product should be can be an amazing partnership got it, got it. and an amazing amazing success thing Siebel system is a great example of that tom Siebel, when he started the company you know tom was in sales at oracle and he saw this need and who did he partner with? He partnered with people like David Schmeier, who was his first head of product, Ed Abo, mm -hmm. and they had all worked together mm -hmm. and they all had their skills. Ed Abo you know, was the engineering person, David was the product person, and Tom was the salesperson. And if you end up making the choice early on, then you also mm -hmm. need to really let go of a lot of product control this person because that person effectively becomes product founder. Exactly. And, but you can't have two people, you know, uh, uh, in the kitchen driving, you know, thing because you are founder and CEO yes. versus, you know, and then you have a product lead in the beginning. Right. And if I, if I could simplify that, you know, my interpretation of that is if you have some product or technical background or even confidence, then maybe you are better off being the product leader early on start with product managers. Mm -hmm. And at some point when the responsibility starts to grow, then you hire a product leader. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Uh, and look, uh, Tom Siebel went through a lot of heads of sales mm -hmm. because, you know, while he was the CEO, he was also an excellent sales leader. And so there would always be some challenges there. Mm -hmm. And similarly, founders who have great technical or product background go through lots of heads of those respective functional departments because they have strong points of views. And, you know, the trick is to find someone who is copacetic with you yeah. and really spend that time. It took me close to nine months before I decided to join LinkedIn as the head of product because I was stepping into Reid Hoffman's shoes, mm. was both the founder and the head of product. Yeah. And you know, both he and I came to this conclusion that we really needed to understand each other's philosophies, mm. see how together we were and the differences, would they be additive or would they mm. be clashing with each other? And really spend that time you know, to harmonize our wavelengths, if you will, uh, before I took that job. So this was when you were moving from Google to LinkedIn. That's right. And so for nine months, you were having this conversation. And was the, the explicit agreement at some point that uh, Reed will let you make the final product call? Was that important for you? Like, you know, what yes, was that? for both of us, that was okay. important. Yes. And was it easy for him to agree to that? Uh, you know, Reed's probably one of the most self-aware people mm -hmm. I've ever worked with in mm -hmm. my life. He's mm -hmm. a deep thinker. He thinks about lots of things. Uh, and the nine months were not spent like just talking randomly. Mm -hmm. We would literally yeah. spend two to three hours every weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, and the conversations were usually in, you know, would take like three different parts. Yeah. One, personal philosophies of life, because I think it's important when you work really closely together mm -hmm. to, to have, you know, similarities. Yeah. Uh, the second were more like professional philosophies, how we thought about teams, how we thought about talent, how we thought about just company building. Yeah. And the third is we would always talk about some problem mm -hmm. or product related thing that he was working on mm -hmm. at LinkedIn to see how would we like handle this problem together. Mm -hmm. And that told us our working styles. Yeah. And even after I joined LinkedIn, like the one thing I recognized in that process of nine months was what a great and deep thinker he is. And I never wanted to lose that. So I made him commit to me that I want to be able to spend as much time as I need with him discussing whatever I need to about the products. Yeah. And he said, 100%, but I also want you to know that the decision will always be yours. Mm -hmm. Whatever I tell you is my opinion, my advice. 
if I feel really strongly about something, I'll tell you that. Mm -hmm. However, you still get to make the final decision. So we had a very explicit contract, if you will, mm -hmm. but it came from both of us recognizing that that's what would make LinkedIn the company successful. And that's outstanding. It's a good thing for a lot of startup founders, especially when companies start to do well, yeah. to keep in mind. At some point, you do want to bring in leaders from outside, but yet you are not willing to let go of the control. You want to be able to make the most important calls. Somewhere, you know, either really good people will not join you, Right. You know, if they don't spend this nine months, you know, really <laughs> testing your intentions deeply, or even they join, you know, they will feel disgruntled because there has to be one master orchestrator, right? Correct. Because and a lot of calls, what I realize is they are not necessarily great on day one. You make a call and you make it great for a period of time, you know, by Correct. maneuvering and you know, uh, dealing with the crisis, etc. Right? You know, so it's not. But if you don't have a wiggle room and you know that leeway, then nothing will come in the way. So I think that's something you know for founders to know either not get you know some heavy hitter CXO or if you do then you really empower them for a while ultimate obviously you hold them accountable for the result but without a runway exactly. you will not see those results exactly right you have to make sure that everyone's making the best possible decision they can with the data they have at that point in time mm -hmm. and with additional data everyone should reserve the right to change their minds yeah. about what that decision right. ought that's to right. be that's right yeah. So during your LinkedIn time, are, are there any features you re recall? I know, I know that I think those are hyper growth phase at LinkedIn, which you think were game changer, maybe continues to be relevant to LinkedIn till this day. Oh my gosh, there was just so many things and so many folks, uh, you know, have contributed to that success. Uh, maybe one big one and, you know, remember this was still in the 2008 to 2010 timeframe when the iPhone had just come out in 2007. So every company at that time was trying to figure out how important was mobile to their strategy. And responsive development was still not a thing. And so you had to really dedicate teams to build mobile environments. Plus iPhone was not as pervasive as it is today. Mm -hmm. Android had not yet come out in full force, right? The first Nexus phone came out in 2009, so two years after the iPhone. And there were lots of other devices. There were Motorola devices, you know, uh, the Asian uh, Samsung, LG, Sony had devices. BlackBerry was still very prominent. So if you committed to mobile, then you have to make all these calls mm -hmm. of, well, do we build apps? Do we build just websites? And is it going to be HTML, yeah. you know, 5.0, which was like the big mobile thing, you recall all of that. These are all very resource intensive decisions. And when you're growing so much on just regular websites, like should you be doing all this? And we made a call and part of it was driven by the fact that, uh, you know, I had spent the time building Google's business and starting it and then, you know, growing it. So I felt very strongly that mobile was the next big technical shift in consumer products. Uh, and that turned out to be the right call. But at that time, we did divert a bunch of resources for, uh, you know, from LinkedIn to also work on mobile. Okay. Uh, but there were several other people in the company who were involved in that decision and also, I think, contributed heavily, including Reed, to it. But I think that did... That early know, pivot to mobile that, drove a lot of growth. Exactly. And that, that was pretty important for us. You know, a couple of days ago, we were having this discussion on, you know, as I was sharing with you, what I think is the typical um, pattern in which most startups fail. Mm. So let me have a different version of, you know, you would have seen the common mistakes, you know, most product managers make. Like what comes to mind, you know, which is something, you know, especially in the early days or maybe maybe even experienced product manager. What are the typical uh, 
uh, fault patterns that you know programmers tend to fall into uh the one very common one is that if something is not working the instinct is to say oh we just need to build something more on top mm. some more features are required yeah. right it's like the the theory is it's like just round the corner mm. and when you think about it it has two fallacies right which become quite obvious the first is why would you ever not put your best foot forward clearly you launch with the features you thought were the most important yeah. so the next set of features couldn't have been more important why suddenly do you have this epiphany that those are going to be more important so are you just kicking the can down the road and not accepting the reality the second fallacy is we now have ways and means of collecting data on just about everything and understanding what people find useful or not find useful and as a result we should be able to tell in what we deployed there would be some good thing so actually you can still extract the good things out of a product that may not be doing well and then saying are the bad things actually masking the good things right and how do you declutter that yeah so you know there's one saying i always have which is uh simplicity is the ultimate sophistication mm. in product building right and in many product reviews if i thought that the product was getting very complex and people mm-hmm. proposed new features yeah. i would always say great i'll let you have this feature but tell me which other feature you're going to take mm-hmm. out yeah yeah just yeah. so not the trust the product right and that i mean so rare i don't know in your in your practice you know how many times you were able to do it but the <laughs> meetings to take out features are you know not in one tenth of the meetings people have about you know adding next thing and the feature just keep adding adding and by the time people take out a feature you know it's like maybe no one even knows or one user using it <laughs> it's just too late you know this i mean you know i mean i i don't run product teams directly anymore but i think i'd love to institute that you know the same frequency of addition and deletion so i think that will the simplicity you know that's the only way it can come in you know when you are continuously eliminating things no, but it goes back to human psychology yeah. like imagine going home talking to your spouse and they say how's your day and what did you do today you have two choices one is i build this amazing thing and it's going to launch in 3 months and you will see it and you will work interact with it and you're going to love it or i just deleted a bunch of things from the product which one will give you more joy to tell someone they can't see what you deleted right so there's some reinforcement in pointing to something and saying look i built that versus look i deleted a whole bunch of useless stuff that was out there uh there's a great uh, anecdote that i talk about uh, about this that i'd love to share so when windows 2005 office 2005 was being rebuilt so that was a massive rewrite after you know from 1995 to 2005 so it was like a 10 year period so at microsoft they said we have to rewrite the whole thing and rethink the product so they did a massive user study of all products in office and what they found at the end of it that 80% of features that the users were asking for already existed they just mm. couldn't find it <laughs> cuz every successive generation of product yeah. managers yeah. had been continued to build more and more yeah. features into the product that's right that's right the, and hence you know micro office you know navigation you know you will click on there was you no know, nine things on top you click then 15 things come Multiple up toolbars. and then you hover over it you know then more things come up right? yeah, yeah the nested toolbar problem that's right, that's right? right and yeah. so eventually so their solution again was not to delete anything yeah. but they invented something remember the clippy clippy yes 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 the clippy <laughs> that was 20 year old version of ai <laughs> right well 
Yes, but it, some... it it generated some pretty extreme reactions, right? Yeah. Like there were Usenet okay. groups of all dot clippy dot die dot die dot die. One yeah. die was not sufficient. People were like, please go away. Yeah, yeah. No, no I, I remember, and I also remember all the all the hate you know generated for Microsoft product. But I think Microsoft has come a long way yeah. since then. But on this point, right? Even this thing of, I guess, eliminating features. One of those things, you know, bunch of other things which we know are good for us. But the, there is, you know, you can't brag about it and you can't get credit for it today. And hence, you know, people don't tend to. But I'm guessing a bunch of, you know, of product managers will end up watching this. So maybe one clear thing everyone can do, please kill one feature in your product. <laughs> That's probably the biggest, you know, benefit you can derive from uh, today's podcast. But so I, I, I will give a simple tool okay. to practices at home okay. before, because, you know, it may feel like a big thing to mm. go and propose that you kill yeah. something on a product. Every time you buy something, hmm. take something out of your closet. Hmm. So put one in, take one yeah. out. Right. And so that that's a simple way of practicing it yeah. every day. Right. And and <laughs> when you buy book. a new book, make yeah. sure one of your old books right. you donate to the library or give it to a friend. Well, the outstanding tool, and I would love to incorporate. I mean, from a fashion background, you know, I tend to buy a lot of. So my you know wardrobe is just stuffed, you know, with things. So I guess you can talk. Yeah, you're right, and that's why probably you know the mental model will sharp get sharpened that you know you're doing at home and you know exactly the same thing and it's also because. a great you know i i practice jain philosophy and one of the five principles of jain philosophy is aparigraha which is non-attachment right. so when you start discarding things you're practicing yeah. non-attachment to things right. and so then it will also feed into our professional lives excellent and product managers to have a little bit of detachment with the features they built right we have to be dispassionate yeah yeah i think i'm not recalling but um in one of the this you know minimalism book, I think somebody said this you know the uh, this title was "Kill Your Darlings," and mm. the idea was you know that you know you tend to fall in love with some of the things you are building, right? And unless you get rid of them, you know there is no space left for Correct. something you know even better and more beautiful. Uh, Deep, I'm going to change the topic a little bit. So you made a transition into the world of you know investment. You mm-hmm. work with SoftBank for a number of years, and now with General Catalyst. And I guess you probably also have the the knack of ending up you know things where mm-hmm. you know things are really you know hyper growth and this roller coaster i think we see industries going through that in last seven eight years so coming from product background um does it make you a different type of vc compared to let's say you know other people who have been into venture industry for a long period of time joined as a analyst principal and grown through the ranks in that or you know entrepreneurs build something at some point had their exit versus you've been building product all this while and a lot of I guess venture business is about, you know, you are investing in two things, either people or products. Correct. So how does, you know, product background help you look at things differently? Yeah. Actually, you almost always invest in people because the products change over time. Right. People don't. Yeah. Uh, so there are two things that I feel have been very beneficial to my investing career. The first is that I was also an entrepreneur and I started a company and that company didn't go very well, right? So it was not a huge success, but that gave me tremendous founder empathy and understanding how high the highs can be and how low the lows can be and to really empathize with the fact that the founder lives with it 24 by 7 Mm -hmm. and it's not just about the success of whatever it is that they are building and the company but also the responsibility they bear for everyone they've hired and all the people on their team Mm -hmm. and that's a huge responsibility and having gone through it i'll never forget it Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's given me like an enormous sense of respect and empathy for the founders. Yeah. 
And then having been an operator building products and businesses, both at Google and LinkedIn, and you know, I got very fortunate, right? We built like multi-billion dollar businesses. You know, I was responsible for over a billion dollars of revenue at LinkedIn, along with my product responsibilities. I've seen how you can create massive growth in businesses and what are the signs and what kinds of things you look for, but more importantly, how can you help businesses be that way? And so I view my job as an investor, uh, you know, to pick the right founders, but then help them bring out their best potential mm -hmm. through advice, opinion, counsel, yeah. uh, and whatever help that they need in order to build these, you know, hyper growth businesses. So those are the places where I think it has been beneficial to have the kind of background that I did, and I'm very fortunate. But just like we talked about product management earlier, there are many paths to success in the investing business also. There are many career uh, you know, investors like my partner Heyman, for example, or Peter Fenton, who started their venture career 20 plus years ago and are phenomenal investors and you know, continue to invest in some amazing companies. Nice look, so this part, you know, pretty much I think everyone in venture industry will agree with you that to a large extent, it is about investing <clears throat> behind people, but people are complicated. They're very difficult to judge. And as a VC also, it's not like, you know, you can, you know, date somebody for a year to figure out is the right. What are some of the, you know, built-in heuristics, you know, signals you look for both positive and negative to kind of calibrate and develop your comfort around people or you know, your unique style of you know, figuring out, you know, who is, you know, something that you feel comfortable backing? Um, you're right. Uh, you you can't really figure someone out right away. But at the same time, you know, I, I had a semi-arranged marriage in that, in the sense that we were introduced by our parents. Mm -hmm. uh, and while we both had the option to say yes or no, we didn't have a long dating period to decide whether we, we liked each other or not. And 30 years later, yeah. you know, we are still together and uh, I like to believe very much in love with each other. So I like to use the same sort of, uh, thinking where you can tell the extremities of someone rather quickly. You can't tell the nuances of someone right away. And you have to decide that the extremities, both positive and negative, are okay with your value system to begin with. And the nuances will always change over time because people do change over time. So that's one part. The other part is for the founders, while you may meet them for the first time and you may not have spend a lot of time with them, we all leave breadcrumbs of our lives behind us. And it's, you know, reference checking is very important. Talking to people who work with that individual is very important. And by the way, I would say the same for the founder and the investor partner that they are choosing. Like, you know, they should do the same diligence because uh, our characters are revealed in adversity, not when everything's going well. And every company, as you know, having been uh, a founder multiple times, goes through adversity of some sense, right? And sometimes you come out of it, sometimes you don't. And the partners you have around you and how empathetic they are, how helpful they are, and how understanding they are makes all the difference in right. the world. Yeah, yeah. Do you also end up, you know, given that, you know, you have depth of knowledge in, in products, do you spend inordinate amount of time just going through the product as well and try to understand intricacies or... Or, or now that you know your VC had, you know, people part has become way more important than. It depends on the stage of the company. Okay. Sometimes there is no product to think about, right. and you can then conceptually talk mm -hmm. about sure. what their vision is. And then, you know, in a later stage company, 
I will definitely, you know, play with the product, etc. Mm. But I don't try to impose my judgment on mm. it because by then the market's already spoken. Right. Right. Sure. So do they have the users? Do they mm. have the customers, etc.? And that that is actually a much important, more important barometer. Going back to the point of like, are you building the product because it's your need or is it the mm-hmm. market's need? Yeah. Right. Uh, I believe in the latter. Mm-hmm. So I I let the market speak. The one thing uh, that can be a detriment. So we talked about the positives of mm-hmm. having my kind of background. Yeah. It can be detrimental to know too much, right? right? Because then we feel we can mm. feel that we know so much that yeah. we want to impose our will on right. the founder. And uh, you know, the biggest mistake we can make mm-hmm. is to forget that our knowledge may be correct, but in the previous version. Previous version, and right. every yeah. version can be different. Right, right, right. That's right. Yeah. So, do you, you know, uh, refrain from giving product advice to companies you work with, or you use the same, you know, Reed's formula that look, this is my opinion, but you take the final call. So uh, I actually uh, have uh, a very in-depth conversation with founders before we make an investment, before I lead an investment. And I say, here are the four areas in which I can be helpful. And uh, the model I like to use is an OKR-based model. Say, every quarter we should get together and you should tell me in these four areas, where can I be helpful to you? And the four areas are as follows. Uh, The first one is system of leadership because Every company is only as successful as the, you know, the depth and the quality of the people that they have. And it can't just be only the founders, right? Eventually, the company runs out of steam if it's only one, two, or three people that can sustain it. So what are the systems of leadership you will put in place? And this is where, you know, the great experience I got at Google and LinkedIn comes becomes really valuable because you look at, you know, each one of those companies and the depth of leadership and the quality of the people that continue to be there that have gone out and done some amazing things like you know that there were systems of leadership in place the second uh, thing we talk about is foundations for future success it turns out that 95% of technology companies do not continue as independent companies for more than 20 years okay and these are like civil systems silicon graphics netscape Oracle, even LinkedIn, right? It's still thriving, but not as an independent company. And part of the reason is that they continue doing the same thing that they were founded on until the very end, right? Sun Microsystems was still building high-end servers. Silicon Graphics was still doing graphic servers. Mm -hmm. Netscape, et cetera. you have to continue reinventing yourself. Like Facebook today is very different than Facebook when it started in 2005. Google is very different today than it was. Microsoft's had like five, seven different avatars, right, in the time frame. So that innovation doesn't just happen. You have to plan for it. And again, having seen it at places like Google, you know, that's one of the places where I start working with founders to say, what are your successive S-curves? How do you think about investing in it while you're nurturing, you know, something that's working really well? Because you can't kill that, but you have to nurture the next crop, the next crop, and the next crop. The third is product and strategic shorter term things, right? So I don't even lead with that necessarily because, you know, as a founder, that's one of the things you should actually intuitively know. The first two things, unless you've done hyper growth before, can be actually hard for you to do. And the fourth ones, Fourth one is also a little bit counterintuitive, but some things that, you know, we have a lot of bench strength at General Catalyst, but I also learned a lot at SoftBank, which is different forms of capital that are required by a company. It's not just equity capital or debt capital. And really sophisticated companies manage their capital structures really well. 
and you know that's another place and that's really for very uh, you know later stage companies but since i invest in up and down the stack that's the fourth area so that's what i have that conversation you know usually i'll have a dinner with a founder at the beginning of every quarter and i'm like okay Mukesh, what, what, yeah. which one of these things is important for you this particular quarter and what can I be helpful to you? And do you think this framework is a little more geared towards later stage or it some is. version? Okay, it is. Okay. Yeah, some of it is more later stage, yeah. but you know, some is earlier stage. Mm-hmm. So foundations for future success yeah. actually can be any stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, product and business strategy obviously yeah. is any stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, act, to be honest, actually, now that I think about it, capital structure is probably more later stage. The mm-hmm. first three are Relevant can be any part. stage. And your system of leadership you should be thinking about from day one. Got it, got it. And these are you know outside the boardroom conversation, you meet one on one, have in that conversation, right? Oh, yes. Right, got it, got it. Yeah. Most I, important yeah. things unfortunately do not happen in boardrooms. Right, right. Yeah, I know that's a whole other topic, you know. <laughs> uh yeah. <laughs> I'm actively involved in many boards, so probably better do not say anything at the moment but yeah we at some point i mean the board have obviously very important role to play absolutely but takes you know i think just someone has just recently sharing about somebody who does outstanding job of uh, in a board meeting but this person prepares you know two days in advance mm. now how many board members out there who take two days to go through all the mis other competition talk to people and come prepared versus you just you know show up in the board meeting and start pontificating right you know which all of us are different times guilty of but okay i'll <laughs> park it there i want to you know you have spent you know you've been big part of silicon valley ecosystem for last you know almost three decades now in various capacity you have seen so many technological shift you've also been very actively involved in india and again in various avatars and you would have seen indian ecosystem evolve and we've obviously come a long way i think when i moved back here in 2007 really no ecosystem to speak of today it's very mm-hmm. thriving ecosystem but still no silicon valley So, from your vantage point, and what other thing you think the Indian ecosystem at large should see develop over next five to ten years, you know, so that we continue make you know march towards being you know next Silicon Valley or at least you know some kind of Silicon Valley in Indian context. Yeah. So the one thing I always tell uh, companies, and I think this is relevant also for uh, geographies, is that uh, you know. you win by being the best of what you are not by trying to compete with something or somebody else right so why be the next silicon valley just be the mm-hmm. best india that we can be uh and develop our own identity and own way of you know i don't think anyone at chai so here's an interesting thing even within the us right it's like austin's the silicon uh, you know the next silicon valley or there's a silicon alley in new york and then there's the whole pacific northwest cluster If you go to China, no one says that Shanghai is the next Silicon Valley. Shanghai is Shanghai. Okay, let me. I, okay, I get it. So let right? me rephrase my question. See, I was just you know looking at the top hundred companies on Indian Stock Exchange, hmm. and almost all of them are banks, financial services companies, IT services companies, lot of infra companies, mm-hmm. and um, probably only one new age company, which is among top you know listed hundred companies, Zomato, which is hmm. you know about ten eleven billion dollar valuation. Compared to you know, US you know top hundred companies in more than half of them, and by value I think it's probably sixty seventy percent is tech companies. Mm-hmm. So we as a in terms of you know value creation, impact, profit you know generation, there's a long way to go. So something has to happen in the ecosystem. So if you have any point of view, you know what are the next stage of things we need to in our own context yeah. to navigate. So uh, several things, you know. So I've been involved now with the Indian ecosystem since about two thousand six when I took on the role at. Google to be the head of Asia Pacific, 
And from then to now, I think we've got, we are now in version 3.0, mm -hmm. okay? That version, when tech companies were being formed, really, you know, in V1.0, most, if not all founders, wanted to get to a certain point and then sell because it would be life-changing money for them. And that was totally okay. But what that did was it didn't generate uh, a generation of people who knew how to take things all the way and make things like really, really big. Yeah. In version 2.0, some people actually did it. Everybody else started looking at them and saying, wait, if Sanjeev at Naukri can do it and has done it, and Deep at Make My Trip has done it, yeah. and Just Dial is doing it, hey, I should have, I should set my sights a lot higher and it can be done in this country, right? So you, that mentality shift started happening mm. and people started doing it. And at some level, you're part of that generation, right? And you did it yeah, too. Yeah, I looked up to Deep and Sanjeev and for sure, you know, these are the guys, you know, who were there and the only people for us to look right. up to. And, and you did it, you cracked it and then, you know, Sachin and Binny at Flipkart cracked it and so on. Current crop of entrepreneurs, version 3.0, right? These are the Bavishes and Naveens and Ritesh and others uh, of this genre. They looked at you and Sachin and everybody else about them and they're like, wait, not only are they successful, we worked with many of them. So we kind of know how this whole thing works. So they're not just looking at you as mentors, they looked at you as peer sets mm -hmm. and they learned from you firsthand. And so now we have a whole crop of people and then they've been building their companies and many of their folks have spun out and they are starting their own companies. That has created a thriving ecosystem and that's exactly what happened in Silicon Valley. So now you have to bring that parallel back, right? Uh, it's always great to look at other success and say what you can draw from it. Where I draw the distinction is don't just try to emulate because context is so different, right? And so let's be our own people mm -hmm. but absolutely take the best from them. Yeah. So if you look at Fairchild, which was the original mm. semiconductor, yeah. it had its fair children, right? Mm. right? And eventually like Intel became one right. of them. And that's how it became Silicon mm. Valley because it was yeah. a semiconductor business. But then that's how that ecosystem mm -hmm. whole started. And yeah. there are some amazing books about yeah. how the history of Silicon Valley has evolved. Mm -hmm. And it talks about that lineage. Yeah. It talks about people at Atari and then they spun out to do X, Y, and Z. And mm -hmm. then uh, people at... Uh, you know, National Semi yeah. and then, you know, from Fairchild and then they came mm -hmm. Intel and from Intel yeah. they went to NVIDIA and all right. kinds of other things. Oracle is one of them, right? Mm -hmm. Like so many people spun out of Oracle, then yeah. Google's become one of right. them. So every successful company spawns itself yeah. of people. That in turn attracts capital. There's no dearth right. of capital in India yeah. now. And so I think India is now very fertile. This mm -hmm. is why I'm super bullish and I spend yeah. even more of my time right. yeah. here is this is the beginning stage right. of that fertility, right? Yeah. Like the, it's no longer just sowing the seeds and seeing which ones yeah. sprout. The plants are becoming bigger. They're mm -hmm. becoming like young trees and yeah. soon the banyan trees are going to right. proliferate yeah. and their offshoots will create more banyan trees. Right. And you want to be there from the beginning. Yeah. That's like the best time to be right. as an investor. And this, I think, a Fairchild Semiconductor analogy, in some ways, you know, quite apt because you know, literally like I've seen that data now, there's uh, between Flipkart and Mintra ecosystem, you know, I can Nandan use the slide, you know, you know uh, when he talks about the digital public infrastructure, like over 700 companies come out of these two companies alone. Yes. So that is the, you know, and some of them are pretty well-known companies also. One of the Sugi, you know, uh, uh, co-founder was X Mintra and, you know, many others, you know. Right. So I think we are seeing that. Um, but and some other things, you know, we are yet to see, like, you know, ultimately, you know, with this 
technology innovation you know and to have this very powerful profit engines yeah. because in some way that drives everything you know so that's i think our ecosystem is yet to get to that point but that that will come so let me offer you three observations/thoughts yeah. on that topic uh so the first one is when you talk about digital public infrastructure upi aadhar ondc yeah. you know some are obviously more pervasive and successful like upi ondc is just beginning to do its thing dpi will take its own form these things are world class in fact they are best in class yeah. right here i don't have to worry if you have a venmo account and i should venmo to you it's like you are on upi rails i'm on upi rails it doesn't matter i can transfer money to you immediately i don't have to even think about it all this notion of like cross application cross platform thing doesn't exist anymore that whole friction is gone the western world is still stuck right, right? Yeah. we are in the landline days in the us whereas you are on 5g yeah. already when it comes to payment infrastructure that's amazing mm-hmm. and that tells us that look it's not about silicon valley like this can be its own thing so that's one part there are parts though where you know what you're talking about profits is actually a very interesting thing here which is the kinds of activities that generate profit say in consumer tech companies in the us or the western world are very different than what happens here it took google forever to get to a billion dollars in ad revenue in india because the purchasing power parity of a consumer is you know it's still 115th that of someone in the us so automatically you know that area under the curve is not as large so now you have to think about other ways people also are not used to paying for things right so the whole notion of you know monthly subscriptions etc doesn't happen like the average us consumer now has like a dozen plus subscriptions mm-hmm. i don't think that's true in india mm-hmm. so you, we have to n- then think of other ways of generating those profit pools and what are those things like you know and only an indian entrepreneur in the indian context can think of nobody from outside is going to be able to tell us that yeah. i think that's the second observation that we have to rethink mm-hmm. even as we think of products that appeal to the same human psychology yeah. you have to think of different commercial engines yeah. in order to monetize the value that's being created right, right? the third part is governance mm-hmm. right so historically i mean this is still a country where i think fewer than 10% of the people file income tax returns mm-hmm. so this economy has always been an unstructured economy and we've all grown up with that unstructured economy and as a result the notion of governance is a little bit foreign yeah. to companies here mm-hmm. if we truly want to become you know whichever nse 100 nasdaq 100 company etc we have to become a lot more structured in the way we govern our companies in the way we do reporting in the way we think about profit pools mm-hmm. treatment of employees etc uh, so that thinking has to happen that's very structural right. no excellent you know they're all very pertinent point and i think i'm pretty sure people are thinking about it and let's hope next 5 years you know we make progress on these dimensions as well and therefore we can have you know both indian context and probably also on a global stage we have you know lot more companies and success and upi like you know paradigms to to showcase i want to just spend some time on uh, on ai and i'll tell you a little more from personal vantage point you know i'm you know part of my day job you know what i do at curefit you know which is our fitness business uh you know adventure studio you know looking at you know various industries you know uh, health education retail etc 
So that is inside the company context. And then when I go out to any conference or event, everyone's only talking about AI. So after two days, I feel like, you know, I need to drop everything I'm doing and only do AI. And I'm pretty sure you probably, you know, morning till night, you are hearing, you know, AI related pitches. How should one navigate? Obviously, it's one of the most defining, I think, paradigm shift moment of our times, but it'll also take some time to play out. So people who are trying to build things, you know, what should be their mental model of, you know, how tightly they need to embrace AI. <laughs> and, you know, because, you know, on, on one hand, you can be really laggard, you can be left out. On the other hand, you know, you can overcome it and you don't know which way things are going, you know, and uh, whether this AI itself will go through some kind of trough for some time before more mature platform emerge. So I think, what do you advise of, you know, our first character is what's going on. Yeah. Like, you know, remove hype from reality. And then you know, people are trying to build something, solving real world problems. How should you think about AI? Yeah, it's it's a great question. Something that obviously has, as an investor, consumed a lot of my time cycles. I've probably seen over 800 companies in the last <laughs> nine months alone. Yeah. <laughs> so See, there you go. Yeah. And I don't think I've seen all of them, right? So there, there, there are uh, a lot of people thinking about AI in, in a very meaningful way, which I think is great. But we, again, we have to step back and take this in perspective. And, uh, you know, this is where I think history can be an interesting teacher for us on how things can, uh, you know, progress. The first real businesses around the internet started happening in the mid-1990s, right? Like, I think Amazon was formed in 1993 or 1995, you know, in that circa, right? Uh, Netscape, et cetera. Uh, however, LinkedIn was formed in 2003. Facebook was formed in 2005. ByteDance in, you know, later, even later than that, right? Closer to like 2017, 2018. What that tells you is that when there is a big tectonic shift in technology, first there's a gap between when the technology movement starts mm -hmm. to the first set of really amazing companies. Mm -hmm. And then that tectonic shift, if it's truly tectonic, will continue to spawn multiple amazing businesses over time. So this is not like a buffet that ends at 2 p.m. And so you better load up your plate like immediately. <laughs> Otherwise you have a problem, right? This is a buffet that'll go on for many, many years to come. And so it's important to take a deep breath and to be very patient and intentional about what you choose to do. Uh, but the other part is that, you know, while that tectonic shift be has become apparent to many people, I think courtesy ChatGPT, which just made it very tangible and palpable to everybody, AI has been pervasive in our life for many, many years. How do you think Google provides us the best possible search results? Why do we think that, you know, you were talking about the attention of the social media feeds. How did they start showing us this? ByteDance had like 10,000 people working on it feed five years ago. And that's why it is so amazing and so tailored without network effects, without using growth hacking, right? This is like pure play AI at work and machine learning at work. Uh, back in the day when you and I were in grad school students, like people were working on computer vision, we were all working on AI and ML in some way. So what changed now? So I think three things changed. One is computers finally become powerful enough that all the math and algorithms that we knew about can actually be deployed 
kind of instantaneously, meaning in a matter of days, weeks, and months of training versus years of training. Because we could not even conceive of that. You know, like literally I wanted to do my graduate work in computer vision. Mm -hmm. And the only way I could do that compute was to reserve time at an NCSA supercomputer machine, which would take months to get. And then, you know, if at the end you made some mistake, now you're gone, like six, nine months would have gone by. And that was clearly like career suicide, right? Like it would take you forever to get a PhD done. So most people moved away from it. Today, you don't have to worry about it. So that is one. Secondly, we've had some fundamental breakthroughs in algorithms. Uh, you know, the transformer work that happened in 2017, so not yesterday, right? It took five to six years for it to start showing up. But even before that, like RNNs, DNNs, you know, deep learning techniques, Jeff Hinton's work, that happened even 10 years prior to that. So things have gotten to critical mass from a math and algorithmic standpoint. And then final thing is the number of people who are trained in these methodologies has also reached a critical mass. It's no longer a few hundred people. Mm -hmm. In Jeff Hinton's era, right, at that point in time, you could like count the hundred or thousand people who understood those things. Today, there are tens of thousands of people. Google Brain itself has like over 2,000 people. So those three things coming together has suddenly now created like this grand explosion. Mm -hmm. And it feels like, you know, suddenly like an innovative, massive, moment has arrived, but it has been decades into the making. Yeah. Will it have its ups and downs? Absolutely, right? Already, if you look at Google Trends, you know, GPT, the search term GPT hit its peak in April of this year. It's been steadily going down since then. Mm -hmm. You know, people who must have written their favorite poems on chat GPT <laughs> have stopped doing so now. But more interesting and important things are happening. Uh, so what does this mean for people who are starting companies? If you're starting a software company today, and if you're not thinking of using generative AI in a very powerful way, my prediction, and I usually don't make very uh, strong conviction predictions, uh, but this one I will say with some conviction is that company may be doomed to fail. And the reason is the following. If you look at enterprise software historically, and you strip away all the accoutrements and the embellishments, what is it really? It's a structured database where the key IP is your data model and its extensibility. And then you have a bunch of forms and fields on top to interact with that data. Yeah. Because you have to either you know, ingest some data into the database, or you have to you know, ingress some out into that form or field, and you put some workflows in the middle that do actions on that data. Yeah. And then you have humans interacting with it. Now, all of a sudden, with generative AI, you don't need structured data anymore. It can make sense of the data in any form, structured or unstructured. So all of a sudden, this core IP of data models goes away. The forms and fields go away because you can now converse with it in natural language. You don't have to like think of like special hotkeys and you know like drop-down menus and all those progressive bars we were talking about earlier. And similarly, the workflow is irrelevant because you can just say file my expense report as opposed to like going in your favorite ex favorite expense report system, uploading your information, taking the drop down, putting in the thing, it going to the AP person, it going to a manager, getting the approval, getting paid for it, et cetera. You can just say, file my expense report, it gets done, mm -hmm. right? Because the system understands what all those steps are. And so if you're going to build a software company today, mm -hmm. you are doing it for some workflow somewhere. You better use generative AI mm -hmm. in a very meaningful yeah. way. So if you're an entrepreneur today, I think one is you cannot ignore AI. <laughs> 
you know, to develop probably enough context and find what's relevant for you. But also yeah. I think what you mentioned earlier, a thing to keep in mind is, I mean, today, you know, you've seen 800 companies. I think we can all agree all those 800 companies will not make it, you know, there's going to be probably some kind of, uh, and in the computer science, we use AI winter. Right. So AI funding winter also Correct. probably going to happen next two, three years. But like, like your earlier example of, you know, people have been building internet companies for two decades and longer and probably on the same thing will play out. So I think it's a, uh, you embrace it now, yes. start developing context, use it where you can, but also be patient. You know, it's not definitely now or never situation. Correct. I mean, you know, don't be the person that when the iPhone moment happened, yeah. said this BlackBerry is the best phone yeah, that I've ever invented. Keyboard. I'll never move away from keyboard. Exactly, right? You don't need the iPhone. Right. At the same time, if you're not the person who built one of the first hundred apps on yeah. the app store, right. it's like, oh my God, the opportunity is passed me by. That's right, yeah. No. Excellent. No, this is super helpful, Deep. I think I just want to thank you for taking the time. I think you have, you know, huge wealth of knowledge, you know, not only product management, uh, venture investing, but generally, you know, leadership. I think uh, you're doing great service to the field at large by sharing your knowledge and codifying it in you know, various formats and... Uh, Know, speaking publicly about it, you know, I'm just immensely thankful that you were able to take time. I've actually, you know, learned a lot from you over the last decade. Continue to learn so and look forward to every opportunity I can get to. No, talk it's it's Thank my you. pleasure and uh, my privilege to be on on your podcast and continue our long-standing relationship. I learned a lot from you as well, Mukesh, and all the amazing work that you do. So thank you for what you do as well. Excellent. Thank you. Deep. At Sparks, we aim to bring to you stories of exponential impact. We share in-depth analysis of what goes behind success stories. If you find our conversations interesting, you can join us by subscribing to our YouTube channel. You can also listen to Sparks on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or any other audio platform of your choice. If you have any suggestions on who we should invite or what topics we need to cover, just let us know in the comments. We are always listening, looking for ways to improve, and keep getting better as we go along.